0: Hi, my name's Ben. I attend WBC with my wife Helen and son, Levi, who you may hear in the background. Um, Our reading for today comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 11 and reading through to the end of the chapter. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 11. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen, rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed us to the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God.
1: Today we're continuing a series that we've called Gripped. Over five weeks, we're going to reflect on what will be, for most, five very familiar topics. And yet we want to make sure that these are not simply topics of interest. They're not optional lectures, things that are here nor there. These are things that must shape how we think and act. They grip us so much that we can't help but want to share them with others. Last week, it was heaven and hell. Today, we're looking at the cross and as always, we need God's enabling to understand and apply this. So let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for the opportunity you've given us. It's not necessarily the opportunity we wanted to be doing this online, uh, but you've provided technology, you've provided us with links and connections that we are able to do this, to stop, to take time, to read your word, to have it in a language that we can understand. And to be able to have the time to be able to stop and reflect on it and so as we reflect on the cross the the most well-known symbol of christianity may you take us and give us a deeper understanding of what it means so that we will respond to you in the right way we pray this in jesus name amen well they say that a picture is worth a thousand words and so for messaging on your phone or social media the emoji is now the modern version of ancient hieroglyphics. With a single image, you can communicate whether you agree with a statement, if you're mad at it, or a multitude of other emotions. Many businesses and organisations spend enormous amounts of money coming up with a picture, a logo to represent them. So connected to their product does the logo become that these simple pictures can be flashed up, and people immediately know whose product it is. The use of OneLogo recently surprised me when they built this new family restaurant at Unidera, so well known as their branding, that the owners decided that the sign out the front doesn't even need their name on it. It's an advertiser's dream to come up with a picture that not only becomes associated with a brand, but represents the heart of what an organization exists for. Amazon wants you to believe that they have everything from A to Z to make you smile. One logo that we're going to see a lot of for the next few weeks is intended to symbolize the unity between regions of the world. But long before any of these symbols existed or advertising agencies were employed to come up with clever marketing, the cross already stood as a symbolic summary of what Christianity is all about. Two simple strokes on a page can represent a very complex belief system. Now there are literally hundreds and thousands of books written about Christianity. The Bible itself is a big book with lots of words on lots of pages. So how can it be claimed that a simple image can represent Christianity? That's what we're going to look at today. What is the significance of the cross? And to answer that question, we have to answer two other questions. The first being, what does the cross symbolise? What does the cross symbolise? The cross is used nowadays in all sorts of ways. It appears on church buildings and on graves. It's used as jewellery, on flags, for organisations, as a tattoo, even on snacks. And while the meaning of the symbol is varied, It is clear that the cross was originally the Roman tool of torturing people to a shameful death. The cross is the ancient equivalent of a hangman's noose, a guillotine, an electric chair or the syringe used to administer a lethal injection. It was the tool of choice to get rid of the worst kind of criminals, to not only kill a lowlife, but to do it slowly and painfully, making a spectacle of them at the same time. The cross was considered to be the ultimate final insult and a warning to anyone viewing it to not behave like the condemned had. But the Bible presents Jesus' crucifixion very differently. Jesus' crucifixion is a shorthand summary of what Jesus came to do. As some have put it, he was born to die. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23 says. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. How can the apostle Paul, who preaches for so long that people go to sleep and fall out of windows, write that the whole message about Jesus can be summarized in just two words? Even if you have only limited knowledge of the gospels, you'll know that Jesus did a lot of things when he came to the earth that he created. He taught, he healed, He cast out demons. He performed miracles, including the raising of people from the dead. Each of the things that he did was extraordinary in and of itself. And yet two words, Christ crucified, is the heart of it all. When Paul writes this, he is following in Jesus' footsteps, who told his disciples on multiple occasions that going to Jerusalem to die was his primary purpose for coming to earth teaching and healing and casting out of demons was all preparation so that his followers could understand what really happened when he died on that cross. Because without having done all of those things, the obvious interpretation was that Jesus' crucifixion meant the same thing that it meant for every other criminal who suffered such a fate, that the justice system had caught up with him and he had been punished for his crime, or that perhaps the justice system was terribly corrupt. And so the disgust that both Jews and Muslims alike feel at the suggestion that the Son of God could die from a certain perspective rightly appreciates the horror of what the cross symbolizes. It is hard to imagine that we could have treated the Creator and King of the universe any worse. It is outrageous that Jesus would die by such an horrific means of capital punishment. And yet the passage that we're looking at today, insists that Jesus' death was not an unfortunate outcome because the Jewish leaders were mistaken in their understanding of who he was or perhaps because the Roman officials were corrupt. It most certainly was not because Jesus had done anything deserving of death. Verse 14 states explicitly that Jesus' death was an act of love as he died for all, motivated by love for us, He chose to die the cruelest death imaginable. A death which gives us new life, verse 15. Now diving in halfway through a book as we are, it's important to appreciate why Paul writes this. Acts chapter 18 records that Paul was one of the people that God used to start the church at Corinth. 2 Corinthians is his second or possibly his third letter to a church which was in danger. False teachers, who Paul sarcastically calls super-apostles later in the letter, had come to Corinth. They were teaching people a new spin on Jesus, a change which led to boasting in their observance of the law, their ancestry, their, their amazing spiritual abilities. No doubt they taught about Jesus, but the focus quickly shifted to themselves and what they were doing to please God. Paul insists that these outward things are all inadequate, and he knew the basis of their mistake from his own past experience. Before meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus, Paul had evaluated Jesus as a false prophet cursed by God. He believed that Jesus' crucifixion was the proof, according to Deuteronomy, that God had cursed Jesus. But having this kind of worldly perspective, Paul calls it in verse 16, leads us to the wrong conclusion. Rather than trusting in what we come up with by our own logic, we must accept God's explanation of the significance of the cross. Which still undermines the logic that is used by many today to evaluate the cross. Some see it as cosmic child abuse. Some see it as merely a a powerful example. Some think that it proves that Jesus pushed the leaders of his time too far. But God tells us that the cross is the ultimate demonstration of his love. It's a symbol of just how much he cares for us, making this, not this, the superlative symbol of love. What does the cross symbolize? It symbolizes God's love for us. But the logical next question to ask is, why was such a drastic action necessary to show love? Couldn't God just say that He loved us? Couldn't He show it by some other means than such a cruel act as crucifixion? Wasn't rescuing Israel from Egypt, giving them the promised land and the the countless tangible blessings He poured out on them already enough? Well, they are already clearer than a box of chocolates, a bunch of flowers or, or even a diamond ring, I'd say. But according to God, it still wasn't enough. While all of those things and much more did demonstrate His love, God saw a need that only his love enacted on the cross could fix, which leads us to our second question. How is the cross the ultimate demonstration of love? Verse 19 in our passage succinctly states why the cross is the supreme enacting of love. Because it reconciles. Because it reconciles. To reconcile here is to remove a breakdown in relationship, to to tear down a wall that has been put up between people, to mend that which has been broken. We've all felt this in some way or another. One of the worst parts of the lockdowns during this pandemic has been the isolation from others that we're all experiencing. And anyone who has had a disagreement or a a fight with a friend or a family member knows the feeling, especially if it was your words or actions that triggered the breakdown. The pain caused when things are not right between people can be devastating. Sometimes it leads us to stick to our guns and even feed the hostility. So hurt are we that we refuse to let the other party come close enough to hurt us again. The damage can even be too great for the relationship to continue. But most who have become distant or estranged from someone they love or loved knows what it is to long for reconciliation, for restoration, for for things to go back to how they were. We were created for relationships, and when they are messed up, we are messed up. And yet as tragic as the breakdown in human relationships is, the rift that has taken place between us and God is worse. Our sin initiated by Adam and Eve's choice to decide for themselves how to live rather than to submit to God's ways, broke a relationship that was even more important. And it's a relationship of a different nature. Sometimes in human relationship, words or actions can be apologised for, misunderstandings can be clarified. But we couldn't just say sorry for our sin or make up with God. There were consequences of our choice to reject his ways. When humanity sinned, just as God promised would happen, death followed. It wasn't an imposed consequence like a speeding fine is. Death is the consequence of sin. Just like Earth's gravity always pulls things down, death is always the outcome of the rift between God and us. The cross stands not to prevent death, but to transfer the consequences of sin from us to Jesus. On the cross, God lovingly chose to do what was needed to deal with our choice to reject his ways. Jesus' death on the cross enables the possibility of us being brought back into the right relationship of creature and creator. Now we each have many needs, needs of sustenance and love, needs of shelter and money, needs of encouragement and education and relationships. But as has been said, when God sent Jesus, he didn't send a doctor to heal our health problems. He didn't send an economist or a financial planner to ensure our future wealth. He didn't send a psychologist to improve our mental well-being, a professor to provide the ultimate education, a relationship coach so we would treat one another better. No, he sent a saviour. Jesus was sent to save us from our sin. That is our biggest need. All those other needs may seem more urgent. They are often given more of our time and energy. But the cross says that sin is the foundational problem that needs fixing, so that all of those other needs can also be met. When Jesus died on the cross, he died the death that we all deserved. The result is that we don't have to die. All we have to do is accept the payment made in our place which is why Paul was so concerned for the Corinthians. They were tempted to accept the teaching that there is something else that God is looking for from us. It is human nature to want to contribute, to to feel that we did something to help fix the problem. But the cross beautifully summarizes Christianity so well because it says that God took the initiative, doing everything that was necessary. He provided the solution. To a problem that we made and we couldn't fix. So how is the cross the ultimate demonstration of love? Because the innocent party pays the price of death to restore the guilty. It loves when the recipients are still opposed to the love giver. Now We asked at the start, what is the significance of the cross? For some it is nothing more than a superstitious symbol, a religious logo that makes Christianity one brand amongst many. But if the true meaning of the cross grips us, then we will cease trying to do things to make God happy with us. We'll stop pretending that we're already good enough. We'll accept God's statement that our sin is not some minor inconvenience, but something that ends in death, either our own or that of the Saviour Jesus. If you have never understood the significance of the cross before, then right now is the perfect time to tell God exactly that. If you've known the significance of the cross for decades, then maybe it's time to ask if, like the Corinthians, you're being tempted to trust in something else that God has already declared does not work. Whatever your position is, it's a great opportunity for us to ask if we are gripped by the significance of the cross. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have provided for us what we needed. The cross is foolishness to so many. And yet you've shown us so clearly that it's exactly what we needed. The consequence of our rejection of you has been paid for by Jesus on the cross. And so we thank you so much for being willing to show your love for us in that way to pay the price that we couldn't pray. I pray for everyone who's listening right now, if they've never put their trust in what's been done for them on the cross, that they would do exactly that right now. For many of us who are watching, we've known of the significance of the cross for many times, and yet it's still tempting to trust in the things that we do, to trust in something else to contribute to our salvation. Help us to trust only in what Jesus has done for us on the cross. We pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen.